Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I am so glad that you're here with me today. I want to apologize to all of you for being a day late with this week's episode, but we had a weekend, y'all. I've told you before that our oldest daughter is in junior high. It was her birthday this weekend, so we had eight little girls at our house for a slumber party. They stayed up till after three in the morning, giggling and laughing. At one point, they were in the kitchen making ice cream at 2.30 in the morning. So to say that this mama was tired is an understatement. As I was typing up my notes for this episode, I kept falling asleep. I worked really hard to get it all done. And then Sunday, even though I posted it was running late and I was going to try to get it out, I realized it was nine o'clock and I still had to go to school today too. So I thought you're just going to have to call it and get it out to everybody Monday. So thanks for being patient. I try not to do that to you guys very often, but unfortunately it happens every now and again. So let's get to today's episode. It's a little different than the other two October episodes that we've already had. It's actually not attached to Halloween or some kind of haunting of any kind. But after I read it, I thought it went with spooky season for a different reason. Our story today is about a woman named Treva Throneberry, and after I read her story, it haunted me. And I know that sounds really dramatic, but I just kept thinking about her afterwards. Her story is strange and it's bizarre. And it's going to make you wonder, was she a con artist or a very troubled woman with severe mental illness? So after you listen today, I would love to hear your thoughts about Treva because I, even after typing all my notes up and going back over all of my research, I'm still not sure either where she falls. I do think that she suffers from some mental illness, but I don't, I just don't know. So I'd love to hear your thoughts after today's episode. And of course, also, if you like what you're hearing, please leave a five-star review and tell a friend about the podcast. All right, enough of all that. Let's get to it. Treva Throneberry was born on May 18th, 1969. She is the youngest daughter of Carl and Patsy Throneberry and has three older sisters and one older brother. The family lived in Electra, Texas, a small one-stoplight kind of town in North Texas, not too far from Wichita Falls. In 1985, Treva was a sophomore at Electra High School, and pretty much everyone in town knew her. It was a town of under 5,000, and she was the waitress at the local drive-in restaurant called The Whistle Stop. People said that she always greeted them with a shy smile when she walked out to their car to take their orders. At school, Treva played on the tennis team, but other than that, she mostly kept to herself. Everyone, teachers and students, described Treva as shy and quiet, but very polite. She always answered with a yes ma'am or no ma'am, and she always had a smile on her face. When she had free time, Treva would sit by herself somewhere quiet and read the red Bible that she always carried with her. And because of her quiet, reserved nature, everyone in town was shocked when she just disappeared one day. She didn't come to work. She didn't come to school. It was like she vanished. No one knew where she was 
or what had happened to her. In December of 1985, Treva walked into the local police station and told officers that her father had held her at gunpoint and raped her. She said that when she told her mother what had happened, she just laughed at her. Police were shocked at these allegations. The Thornberry family was a nice family. Carl and his wife Patsy were well thought of in the community. They weren't well off. In fact, they scraped by most of the time. But Carl and Patsy made sure all five children were well taken care of. They were always dressed appropriately for school and well fed. All the children were well behaved and had great manners. But the officer wasn't going to take any chances. He immediately called Child Protective Services to take Treva to foster care until everything could be sorted out. The judge put emergency protection orders in place, temporarily preventing Treva's family from seeing or contacting her. They weren't even allowed to know where she was. So, that's why she vanished. Of course, it didn't take long for rumors to start to swirl in their tiny little town. Could Carl have done this? Why would he have done this? If he hadn't done it, why would Treva have gone to the police to say something about it? The family went to court. Carl and Patsy, Treva's parents, both said that she had made the whole thing up. Carl had never abused Treva or any of their other children. They wanted Treva to take a polygraph test to prove that she was lying. Treva's sisters also said that their father was innocent. He had never laid a hand on any of them. Now, Treva's parents believed that a member from the church Treva had started going to was who had raped her. Carl Thornberry said that the night she made the accusations against him, someone had let her off at their house about a block from home. She came into the house and her clothes were torn and muddy. Her face was red and she was in terrible shape. Patsy Thornberry compared the church to a cult. She said that ever since that Treva had gotten involved with the church, she had been calling every man she knew dad. Patsy also said that the man they suspected of assaulting Treva disappeared after that night. Now, I never found anything else about this man. And I really do, after you hear more about Treva's family, I think you're going to see that Treva's parents were really grasping at straws because the truth was really probably too ugly for them to face at that point. And you're going to find out Treva's father never was able to face it. Now, the people at church told a different story about Treva. They said they were concerned about her because they believed she was having trouble at home. She'd been coming to church telling that she was scared to be at home and that at night she snuck out of her house to go sleep in the abandoned house next door or she slept at the church on a pew. It was obvious to everyone that something was wrong. Whether Treva's father or someone else was responsible for what was going on, things weren't right. While Treva was in foster care, Sharon Gentry, her foster mother, reported that she often found Treva curled up in the fetal position in the corner of her bedroom with the blankets pulled up over her head at night. Other nights, she would go into the bedroom and she would see Treva banging her head against the wall while she was asleep and murmuring, please don't hurt me, I'll be a good girl. While she stayed at the Gentry home, Treva enrolled at Wichita Falls High School. Just like in Electra, people thought she was a nice, quiet girl who worked hard at school. She still carried her red Bible with her and read by herself when she had breaks, but she also started writing poetry. She kept a journal just for her poetry. One of her poems read, Raining tears flowing down my face, yours forever, a lost case. No one cares or sees you fall. No one hears you when you call. It's not very cheerful. 
She also started leaving notes around the house for Sharon Gentry to find. One of them that she left attached to the ironing board read, Sometimes I wish I were dead. Sometimes I don't. Life seems impossible and death seems eternal. I will have no life after death. She also told Sharon Gentry that she had dreams about shooting herself. She said in her dream she could see the bullet entering her head. The longer Treva stayed at the Gentry house, the more disturbing her behavior became. She told Sharon that when she lived in Electra, she had been blindfolded and abducted by a satanic cult and taken to an abandoned oil field and tied to a stake. She said that people in black robes danced around her and slit the throats of black dogs and cats and forced her to drink their blood. In May of 1986, Treva went to see her school counselor and said in a very calm, detached voice that she had been thinking about jumping off the third floor of the building to kill herself. Police officers arrived, handcuffed her, and took her to the Wichita Falls State Hospital. When I read this, this made me so sad for Treva. It's obvious that whatever is going on, she is a very troubled young girl. And instead of quietly taking her to the state hospital, because she obviously needs therapy and some help, but instead of quietly taking her, they treated her like a common criminal and cuffed her in front of everyone at the school. While Treva was at the state hospital, she spent most of her time sitting by herself in the day room of the adolescent wing, staring out the window. Hospital reports say that she cried most of the time and she hardly ate a thing. The doctors performed various tests to try to figure out how to help her. She went to weekly therapy sessions with other teens, but she didn't say much during these sessions at all. She mainly just sat there. She did write a few letters to her foster mother, Sharon Gentry, and to a boy from Wichita Falls High School who had taken her on a date. The letter she wrote to the boy said, I feel like a living robot. I walk when they say walk. I sit when they say sit. I do everything they say because I have to. I can't take it anymore. I have to die. Can you imagine being a teenager and receiving that kind of a letter from a friend? I feel like that would be really scary and probably even a little traumatizing for that kid too. The doctors prescribed Treva Xanax, Trilophon or Trilophon, and Tofranol for anxiety, depression, and to combat thought disorders, whatever that means. The doctors were baffled by Treva. They couldn't figure out how to help her. They had never seen anyone like her. One doctor wrote in his report that she had a characterological disorder. It said, she's kind of quiet and secretive, and she may have a personality problem. They finally decided that it might help her if she met with her parents. Maybe that would help the doctors figure out what to do to help her. Besides, her parents had been coming to the hospital every day asking to see her. But at first, the hospital wasn't allowed to let them see her because of the charges against her father. Now, ultimately, the charges were dismissed against Carl Thronberry because the district attorney said there was no evidence to prosecute him. Treva sat with her parents, Carl and Patsy, while a therapist and a social worker observed. Her parents told her, tell the truth. Say that her father hadn't raped her. They told her to admit that she had been lying. Again, I feel sorry for Treva. I don't feel like she had any support at home, and she knew this. So she just figured that she was on her own and she was going to stay that way. Treva got mad. She got up and told her parents that they were the ones who were lying. She said that they didn't love her. And then she looked at the social worker and... Uh, the therapist, and said that she wanted to return to her room. She didn't want to talk to her parents anymore. 
Treva stayed at the Wichita Falls State Hospital for five months. She was discharged in October of 1986 when the doctor said that she was no longer suicidal or severely depressed. Her therapist said the biggest issue was that she was unpredictable. No one was really sure what they should do with Treva or how to help her. Now, Treva begged the social worker to please not send her back to her parents. And the Throneberries were fine with that. They didn't want her back at home until she would admit that Carl hadn't done anything to her. Can you imagine being a teenager who had obviously gone through some kind of traumatic experience and instead of your parents trying to support you and say, you know, whatever this is, come home, we'll help you. They're like, no, don't come back until you admit you're a liar. I just, that's so sad. This whole, it, the whole thing makes me sad. And, you know, I could understand maybe if Treva had been a problem kid, if she had been causing trouble, if she'd been lying, but this was the first time anything like this had ever happened. I would just think that her parents would want to get her home and try to help her as best they could. But I do believe that Treva knew she wasn't going to get any support. So like I said, she thought there's no, bo no point in going back there. Eventually, the truth would come out about what had happened to Treva. Treva's three older sisters finally came forward and admitted that their uncle, Billy Ray, had molested all of them for years. But they didn't tell this until after their uncle died. All three sisters were terrified of him. He told all of the girls that if they ever told anyone, he would have their parents, Patsy and Carl, killed, and then the girls would have to come live with him. He said then he could have them all the time. That was why all three older sisters, Sue, Kim, and Carlene, had married in their teens. They wanted out of that house. None of them had told each other or their parents what was happening to them. Their uncle, Billy Ray, was a divorced alcoholic who often came to stay with the Throneberries. He would ask one of the sisters if they wanted to go to the store with him. Even if they hesitated, their dad always said, Go on, let Billy Ray buy you something nice. Carl Throneberry looked up to his older brother, and he adored him. He was a veteran of the Korean and Vietnam Wars. So even after the truth came out, Carl didn't believe it. When Billy Ray would get drunk, he would come into the girls' rooms at night to touch them. The girls would lay there with their eyes shut and try as hard as they could not to make a sound while he ran his hands over their bodies. He would tell them, keep your mouth shut, while his breath stank of alcohol. All of them said that, it was a different time. They weren't told about good and bad touch. And they thought that they had managed to let their parents know what was going on. But they said, obviously, they didn't. Or their parents were in denial. Also, because no one ever talked about it, they thought that was how things were at other people's houses, too. All the girls had been trained not to discuss it. They didn't even talk about it to each other, not until after they were grown and Billy Ray died. But all three of the older girls did everything they could to stay away from their Uncle Billy Ray. If they knew he was coming over, they would work extra shifts at their jobs just to make sure that they didn't have to be at home. 
One time, Sue Throneberry ran away, but was caught in the town of Childress. But because her uncle had threatened to kill her parents, she was too scared to tell her family why she ran. Of course, that meant eventually that Treva was the only girl left at home. The quietest and most gentle, the most docile, the one who never put up any arguments. One time when Sue came home, oh, and also Billy Ray's favorite. It makes my skin crawl to think about it. One time when Sue came home after she had moved out, she found Treva sitting on Billy Ray's lap. Now, she was 10 at the time. He had his hand under her shirt and was squirming back and forth. Sue said she was torn between helping her sister and the fear she had of her uncle. Her sister Carlene got married at 16 just to get out of the house. Treva was 10 when Carlene left, but she asked her sister if she needed any help with Billy Ray, hoping that that would prompt Treva to say something. Carlene even asked Treva, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Treva just looked at her sister and smiled and said she liked Billy Ray's presence. Carlene believes Treva didn't understand what was happening to her. She said all of them had been very sheltered growing up, and she thinks that Treva just really had no clue, or like them, thought that was just the way things were. Carlene said that she would never, ever get over the shame and guilt of not helping her sister and helping her get out of the house. But all three sisters assumed that when Treva made the false accusation against their father, that that was her way of getting out too. They said Treva knew that Child Protective Services would remove her from her home. They believed she was just as scared of Billy Ray as they were. But Treva was different. She didn't have a boyfriend to marry like her sisters. She didn't even go on dates. In fact, most people in Electra said that even though Treva was nice and polite, she was odd. She drew strange pictures. One time she drew a picture of a girl standing next to a leafless tree with a completely blue face and a black sun in the sky. One time at church, she stumbled up to the altar, fell to her knees, and told Jesus that she didn't deserve to live. Then there was another time that Treva's niece, Jalisha, said she shook her awake in the middle of the night and whispered that a man was outside their room with a gun, but it was all completely made up. And Treva did stuff like this fairly often. Since Treva didn't want to go back home, it was decided, though, that she would be sent to the Lena Pope Home, the Fort Worth Residential Treatment Center for Troubled Adolescents, which... That suited Treva just fine. While she was there, the counselors put together a plan to help Treva improve her skills and self-confidence and to develop and maintain interpersonal relationships. She was also enrolled in Arlington Heights, the nearby high school, so she could finish her senior year. In June of 1987, 18-year-old Treva Throneberry graduated from high school. She wore a blue graduation gown and walked across the stage to receive her diploma. She smiled politely, just like she always did, as she took her diploma from the principal. Since Treva was now 18, she could no longer be under the juvenile supervision of the state, so she was now out on her own. She told her counselors that she was going to apply to a Bible college that didn't require SAT scores. She said that all she really wanted was to be normal and to feel normal and do her best to live a normal life. Treva went back to Electra for a few days but refused to go to her parents' house. She visited with her three older sisters, Carlene asked her to go apologize to their father. Treva kept her eyes down and refused to say a word. All the sisters knew what the real problem was. They knew what she'd been going through because they had all been through it themselves. The sisters also believed that Billy Ray had become even worse with Treva. 
While Trevi was staying with her sister Kim, she told a story about being kidnapped by a satanic cult, which forced her to drink blood and participate in infant sacrifices. Her sister knew this was completely made up, and she asked her why she kept saying all these strange things. But Treva had a vacant look on her face, and she couldn't tell if Treva could even hear anything she was saying. It was like she was somewhere else completely. Now, Treva's sisters did worry that even though they had managed to get out and make a life for themselves and get away from their Uncle Billy Ray, they did really begin to wonder if the trauma that Treva experienced had caused irrevocable damage to her. And the more we talk, it looks like it probably did. Now, Treva only stayed one day in Electra and then she left. She never enrolled in college. She lived in Fort Worth for a little while with a woman who had three children, and then she moved on to the YWCA. Treva called her foster mother, Sharon Gentry, once, collect, and told her that she was working in a motel in Arlington as a maid. She called another time and said that she was living on the streets. Then she disappeared. No one heard a thing from her. Her family didn't really look for her. They figured she wanted to go somewhere new and start a new life, and so they were hoping that that's what she did. But they had no idea what she was really up to. In fact, it would be years before they knew. Treva had started a new life, but not in the way that they expected. By 1992, most people in Electra, including her family, thought that Treva was dead. Her parents kept a $3,000 burial insurance policy on her because they fully expected one day to be notified that her body had been found. In 1993, her mother wondered if she had been one of the people who died in the fire at the Branch Davidian compound near Waco. Sharon Gentry, her foster mother, sent Treva's most recent dental records to investigators to see if she might be one of the bodies that died in the fire. But Treva wasn't there because she was in Corvallis, Oregon, posing as a teenager, teenager named Kelly T. Throneberry Smith and working at a McDonald's. She was staying with a family she had met at church. While she was in Corvallis, she tried to have her name legally changed to Kelly Smith because she said she was hiding from her father who lived in Dallas. She told the officers in Corvallis that he had already tracked her down once and forced her into his car and raped her. Police could never find Kelly's father, and then she disappeared. The next summer, she was in Portland and told the police she was on the run from her sexually abusive father. But this time, her father was a Portland police officer. There was another investigation, and Kelly disappeared again. In 1994, she reappeared in the town of Coeur d'Alene, Yes, sorry, it's kind of a, hard to say. In Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, calling herself Carolina Davis. She said that her mother had been murdered and her father, a police officer, had been a member of a satanic cult and had raped her. She vanished from town two months later. Later that year, she went back to Texas. She traveled to Plano, which is a suburb of Dallas, and told police officers and social workers that her name was Kara Williams and that she was just 16 years old. She said that she had been born and raised in a satanic cult and taught that her destiny was to honor Satan and die in a lake of fire. She said that many of the children she knew had been sacrificed by the cult, stabbed with daggers. Her father had murdered her mother. He was the cult leader and a police officer in Colleyville, another nearby suburb of Dallas. As usual, she said that he repeatedly raped her and would force her to chant prayers to Lucifer. So you're going to see that this is her pattern. She tells these crazy outlandish stories about satanic rituals and then about being molested or raped herself. And some of the psychologists believe that 
the rape part is probably true, and it's based on her uncle Billy Ray, but she never would actually talk about it. It was like it was too much for her to say that it happened to Treva. It happened to all these other people that she created. One detective was so determined to find the officer who harmed Kara, a.k.a. Treva, that she drove to Colleyville herself and asked the police chief if he had any officers with a particular interest in the occult or satanic activities. And that's another thing. People felt sorry for Treva. They wanted to help her. They wanted to try to find these people and bring them to justice, and they wanted to take care of Treva. Uh, a social worker felt so sorry for her that he took her on a trip to Six Flags and shopping at the mall. He wanted her to see what normal life was like. They took her to foster homes and youth shelters in and around the Dallas area, trying to make sure that she felt safe where she stayed. At one shelter, she accused a male staffer of sexually molesting her, so she moved again. But each time that she made these accusations against these men, it turned out to be false. Each time, though, that she moved, she enrolled in a new high school, even though by this time she was well past high school age. By 1995, Kara, and you can't see me, but I'm putting that in air quotes, had attended high schools in Sadler, Sherman, and Dallas. Each time she joined the tennis team, one of the social workers even bought her a new tennis racket, hoping it would help her out. In September of 1995, Suzanne Arnold, Kara's social worker received a call from one of the staff at the residential treatment center where Kara was staying. The staffer was from Electra. What are the odds? She told Suzanne Arnold that Kara was really Treva Throneberry and that she was 26 years old. They confronted Kara with records, pictures, and handwriting samples. All of this proved who Kara really was, but she refused to admit that she was Treva Throneberry. The people at the treatment center believed that she truly thought that she was Kara. They thought she believed everything she was saying. But because she was an adult, she was soon discharged from government supervision and they handed her a quarter and gave her the phone number for the state's mental health office and some homeless shelters. Her social worker told her to please get some help, but Kara looked at her and said she was not Treva. And then she was gone again. In June of 1996, she appeared in Asheville, North Carolina calling herself Emily Kara Williams. She said she was a 16-year-old girl who was on the run from a cult in Texas. Now remember, we're in the early 90s and we're fresh off the satanic panic of the 80s. So at this point, people were still... The whole thing about believing in cults, because a lot of it had been disproven and discredited, but some people were still believing it. And so she was playing off this. It was, it was working for her. In August of 1996, she said she was 16-year-old Stephanie Williams in Altoona, Pennsylvania. She told police she was on the run from her father in Memphis, Tennessee. She said he was involved in a cult and a child pornography ring. A social worker saw Suzanne Arnold's name in Treva's notebook and started checking around and made some phone calls. She found out that this girl was really Treva Throneberry. Now this time, Treva was arrested and sent to jail for nine days for providing a false report to law enforcement. A social worker called Carl and Patsy Throneberry while she was in jail and asked them to speak to their daughter. Hi, baby, it's your daddy, said Carl. Treva responded by saying, you sound like a nice man and I wish you were my father. 
but you're not. Her mother said, honey, you'll be Truva Throneberry until the day you die. Now stop playing games. Oh no, you have me mixed up with someone else, Truva said. But maybe someday I may just get that way and see you. Once she was released from jail, Treva was gone again. She showed up in Louisiana, New Jersey, and Ohio. At each one, she used a different alias and always stayed at youth shelters. So she was a perpetual teenager in her mind. She kept enrolling in different high schools. She had used at least 18 different aliases by the late 1990s. Doctors were starting to wonder if she had had a total break with reality and had truly forgotten who she really was. In 1997, she showed up in Vancouver, Washington, calling herself Brianna Stewart. She arrived at Glad Tidings Church, claiming to be 16 years old and on the run from her abusive stepfather. She told all the same stories as she did before. The congregation of the megachurch felt sorry for the girl. The church receptionist, Debbie Fisher, took her in. She said at first she felt, she felt sorry for her. She didn't want this poor girl to end up back out on the street. But the longer Brianna lived with them, the more difficult she became. In fact, most of the families who took Brianna in said that at first she was really sweet, but then she always became very difficult and hard to live with. Fisher said that Brianna did not like to do chores, and she argued with anyone who disagreed with her. She also did not like the fact that she had a bedtime, so she would argue about that. But remember, she's a teenager. She's living with these people who are supposed to be like her parents. But she didn't want to be treated like a teenager. Something else that would happen was that Debbie Fisher said that anytime someone remarked on the fact that she looked older than she was, she became very, very upset. I'm going to post some pictures to the social media accounts and you're going to see. I mean, at this point, she's 27 years old. And if you look at her in her prom picture with her date, it's obvious she is not a teenager. She doesn't look old by any means, but she's not a teenager. But everywhere Brianna went, aka Treva, she wore bib overalls and her hair in braided pigtails everywhere. She didn't dress like other high school girls at Evergreen High School where she enrolled, and I'm sure this helped her look younger. I also think that people didn't want to push it because her story was so sad and so pitiful, they didn't want to look like a horrible person if they doubted her. One teacher chalked it up to her being a street kid. He said they often looked older than their age because they'd had a tough life. The other student said that Brianna was awkward. Said that one time when she rode to the mall with some other girls, they were dancing along to a song on the radio. But the girls said her movements were strange and jerky. It was like she'd never even danced. But everyone chalked up all of Brianna's idiosyncrasies as a result of her terrible childhood. They just thought she'd never had a chance to be a normal kid. While Brianna was enrolled at Evergreen High School, she caught the eye of a fellow sophomore, Ken Dunn. He was fascinated by her. He said that she was like no one else he'd ever met. They dated for almost 18 months. They even wore matching red shirts and bib overalls to their high school dance. Ken said that they made out a lot, but she would never let him have sex with her. That was off limits. Now, I do think that's interesting, too, because she is a grown woman at this point, 27, 28 years old, but she won't let her boyfriend have sex with her. Again, I feel like that's part of her trauma. 
Eventually, Brianna told Kevin about her awful childhood. She told him that she saw her stepfather stab her mother to death and that he made tapes of himself and his friends raping her and that he sold them on the black market. She said she became pregnant at the age of 12, so he shoved her down a flight of stairs to make her have a miscarriage. She also said she tried to turn him in, but no one believed her, and that's why she had to run away when she was 13. Ken was beside himself after he heard her story. He couldn't believe that after all of the things that had happened to her, she was still trying to finish high school and make a better life for herself. So he admired her. He thought that she was strong and courageous. Now, she also told Ken that she had made friends with a security guard who had raped her. She bravely went to the Vancouver, Washington Police Department and filed charges against him. He pled guilty to communicating with a minor for immoral purposes, and he was fired from his job. Now, later on, when it came out that she was an adult, those charges were dropped against him. And I'll say this. I, in some reports, I read that it was consensual sex with a minor. And then in others, I read that she said he raped her. So there's varying reports. I'm wondering if it was really a statutory rape charge, maybe. And so it was more about her being a minor. I don't, I don't know for sure. But when it came out that she was really 27 years old at the time, the charges against him were dropped and his record was expunged. Now, Brianna began trying to get a social security number for herself. If she could get one, she could move on with her life. She could get a driver's license, go to college, and get a job. The social security office said she would need a birth certificate to be able to get a social security number. So, of course, that posed a problem since she wasn't Brianna Stewart. That was a made-up person. Now, that is one thing. Of all of her aliases and made-up names, they were just made up. She wasn't trying to steal someone else's identity. She was just trying to create a new identity for herself. But there were lots of people who were willing to help Brianna. A state social worker conducted a governmental record search looking for any evidence of Brianna, her mother, or her stepfather, hoping to help her find her identity. But nothing showed up. She even asked the FBI in Portland to check to see if she was possibly a girl who was kidnapped in Salt Lake City. But that didn't pan out either. And then, at one point, she decided that she was from Daphne, Alabama. Now, no one knows why she picked Daphne, because Daphne was another little teeny tiny town in the South, but she picked it and said she thought that she was from there. So, another group of people helped her get the money to travel to Daphne, Alabama. She visited the place. She, like, took her time. She visited places. She said they looked familiar, and the police department in Daphne helped her. But, I mean, she fooled a lot, a lot of people, y'all. So she must have been very convincing. She would say things looked familiar, but of course, nothing was turned up and no one in Daphne recognized her or knew anything about this family that she claimed to have had. Now, things started to change, though, because when Brianna visited a dentist in Portland, Oregon, he noticed something odd about her teeth. And he told her social worker that it was unusual that Brianna's wisdom teeth had been extracted and the scars had healed. He said that you usually didn't see that in someone who was 16 years old. That was typically seen in someone older, like 19 or 20. Now, the dentist warned Brianna that it could get her into a lot of trouble if she was lying about her true age. 
Well, Brianna, instead of getting scared, was furious. She fired off a five-page letter to the Department of Protective Services, single-spaced, criticizing anyone who doubted her. And part of her letter said, I feel that remaining in foster care is not safe for my physical, mental, and emotional well-being. I feel that I have been abused by the very system that I ask for help. Now, social services backed off and let things go, probably because they didn't want any bad publicity. When Brianna told Ken about this, remember her little boyfriend, he was shocked when she got mad at him because he asked her, could there be anything to what Dennis was saying? In Ken's mind, he just thought this might lead her to her identity. But she was mad. And she said, how dare he doubt that she was really 16 years old? And I'll tell you, that's one of the things that gets me about Brianna, a.k.a. Treva. In some ways, I really do think that she believed her story. She thought she was Brianna Stewart 100%. But anytime someone questioned her identity, she became furious or if they questioned her age, she became furious and she would fly off the handle and become very, very just, you know, how could you be like that? How could you doubt me? So it does make you wonder if somewhere deep down in there, she knew she was lying. You know, I mean, why didn't she just laugh at people and blow them off? Now, by May of 1998, things had become very strained at the Fisher house and where Brianna had been living. Remember the church receptionist? They had an argument about vacuuming. Brianna didn't want to vacuum. And it was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Miss Fisher was tired of the arguments, tired of Brianna's, well, bad behavior. And so they told her she had two weeks to find a new place to live. Another family in town took Brianna in. Their names were David and Teresa Gambetta. And they treated her like she was part of the family. In fact, their son was Ken, Brianna's boyfriend's lifelong best friend. He grew up in the Gambetta house. Now, the Gambettas cleared out their study and made Brianna a bedroom of her own. They let her decorate it like she wanted. They gave her an allowance of $10 a week, and they bought her a stereo for Christmas. I mean, as far as they were concerned, she was one of their family. And so in May of 1999, the Gambettas were shocked and heartbroken when Brianna called and told the police that David Gambetta had installed cameras in the light fixtures in her bedroom and was spying on her. Now, of course, after a brief investigation, the police soon decided that her accusations were groundless, but the Gambettas obviously told Brianna that she was going to have to leave. Brianna then moved in with a police officer and his wife from Portland. And even after she moved out, the police said that their, her allegations were baseless. She wouldn't back down from her story. She continued to claim that David Gambetta had been spying on her and making videotapes. Now, the police officer and his wife, they paid for her summer school. They bought her new clothes and new shoes. Again, treated her like one of her own. But by this time, Ken was kind of done. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. He'd grown up in the Gambetta house. And their son was his best friend, like I said. He knew that David Gambetta would never do something like that. And he began to question everything that Brianna had told him about her life. It didn't take long for Ken to break up with her. He also told a reporter later that he loved Brianna, but their relationship weighed on him. 
All of the stories she told him kept him in turmoil. He was also worried all of the time. Brianna constantly told him she was being followed, which of course then in turn made Ken think that he was being followed too, since he spent most of his time with Brianna. He also worried about how much Ritalin she took. She had been diagnosed with ADHD and a doctor had prescribed the Ritalin to her, but she didn't follow the prescribed dosages that her doctor doctor recommended. And that worried Ken too, because she took way more than she was supposed to. Brianna did graduate from Evergreen High School in June of 2000. The community college in Vancouver, Washington allowed her to enroll with a tuition scholarship, even though she did not have a social security card. Brianna spent her summer working as a volunteer answering telephones for Ralph Nader's presidential campaign and devoting her time to getting a social security number. She wrote a six-page letter to the governor of Washington asking for help. She also got two lawyers to help her too. One was in Vancouver, Washington, and the other one was in Portland, Oregon, but neither one knew about the other. And you know, that's the thing. Brianna wasn't shy about asking people in high places to help her. She was gutsy, I'll give her that. She even contacted the Montel Williams show to see if she could be a guest. She figured if she went on national TV, then surely she could figure out who she really was. Now, the lawyer in Portland chose to petition the federal government directly, asking to issue Brianna a social security number. He asked Brianna to please just submit a fingerprint test just to make sure that there was she wasn't someone else and that her identity was floating around out there and she just had never found out who she really was. Now, Brianna readily agreed to putting this, doing this fingerprint test, because remember, she's Brianna. She has nothing to hide. The Portland attorney was told that all Brianna had to do was appear for a simple court hearing and that they would grant her her birth certificate. So she was thrilled. She was almost there. But on March 22nd, 2001, Brianna was arrested on charges of theft and perjury. She didn't make it to her hearing for her new identity. The officer that arrested her said that she was really a 31-year-old woman posing as a teenager and had fraudulently received free foster care and free public education from the state of Washington. When her attorney had asked for the fingerprint test, Brianna didn't think anything about it, and she'd forgotten about her arrest in Altoona, Pennsylvania all those years ago. Well, her true identity was discovered. She was Treva Throneberry. But Treva a.k.a. Brianna, swore up and down that there had to be just some kind of clerical error. She was Brianna Stewart, and there was no way that she was 31 years old. Even with all of the proof staring her in her face, Brianna never admitted her true identity. She never admitted that she was Treva Throneberry. Most people felt sorry for her. They all thought that she had to be suffering from some kind of mental health crisis. And let's be honest— Why, if you were going to pretend to be someone else, would you pretend to be a high school sophomore and sleep in homeless shelters and stay in foster care? I know if I was going to take on a new identity, it would definitely not be of a high school sophomore. I would definitely want to make sure I had a much more glamorous life. Most people thought she should receive psychiatric help, not be sent to prison. Dozens of letters were sent to the editor of the local newspaper. Several complained that her trial and housing in prison would cost way more than what she had received as a juvenile. Her competency was questioned since she was so adamant that she was Brianna Stewart, not Truva Throneberry, but she was evaluated and found competent to stand trial. One psychology professor said that Truva's childhood trauma must have set off an extreme dissociative fugue. 
Now, a dissociative fugue is a temporary state where a person has memory loss or amnesia and ends up in an unexpected place. People with this symptom can't remember who they are or details about their past. Other names, you might hear it just called a fugue or a fugue state. But the thing is, usually these things don't last for very long. And Treva had been going through this now for years. But one thing all the doctors agreed on was that Treva, Treva truly seemed to believe the stories that she was telling. She was not trying to deceive anyone or con anyone. The prosecutor offered Treva a plea bargain, two years in prison in return for admitting that she really was Treva Throneberry. But she refused to take the deal. She said she was not Treva. She told the judge that she didn't know who this Treva person was, but it was not her. After she was arrested, she even went so far as to demand a DNA test to prove that she was not Treva Throneberry. She said, compare her DNA to Carl and Patsy Throneberry. She knew that this would prove that she was telling the truth. But the results showed that there was a 99.93% likelihood that she was Carl and Patsy's daughter. But even after all of that, she maintained that, there, that she was Brianna Stewart and there was some mistake somewhere in all the records. Most people, like I said, were convinced that she truly had no idea that she was Treva Throneberry. I think the only person who really thought that she was playing a con was the prosecutor. Now, he was determined to put her behind bars, and he had no sympathy for her whatsoever. Treva's attorneys also felt sorry for her. They were planning to argue that even though she was really Treva Throneberry, she truly believed that she was Brianna Stewart. So therefore, she should not be found guilty because she was not trying to deceive anyone. But Treva found out about this and was furious. So she fired him because remember, she thinks she's Brianna Stewart. And she told the judge that she would represent her own self in court. Treva's trial began in November of 2001. And each day she showed up in court wearing her braided pigtails. But instead of her overalls, she wore a long denim skirt. She tried her best to defend herself, but you can imagine that it didn't go very well. The prosecutor flew in Sharon Gentry, Treva's foster mother from Wichita Falls. She testified that she had known Treva when she really was 16 years old. Treva got up and asked Sharon Gentry a few questions. Sharon had brought some pictures from the time when Treva lived with her. She asked Sharon if she could look at them. She stared down at the pictures, and then she asked what Treva was like. Sharon Gentry looked at Treva and said that she was very polite and enjoyed going to church and playing tennis. She also said that Treva was a kind girl. Treva finally asked if Treva was smart. Sharon Gentry said yes. She made good grades and loved to read. Sharon Gentry followed it up by saying she was a hard worker and that Treva was a wonderful young woman. Treva said thank you and walked back to her seat. There really was no evidence that Treva could present to help herself out. The jury found her guilty of seven counts of fraud and perjury, and the judge sentenced her to three years in prison. At one point during her prison stay, she wrote a letter to a reporter and said, I still resent answering to a stranger's name. I hope to be free of all of it soon. Carl Throneberry said Treva would call home from time to time, but pretend to be someone else. I told her, I said, I know you're Treva. I know your voice. You're my little girl. And Carl said that she would always say, I'm not. I wish I was. And then he'd always reply, you're still Treva. You always will be. Treva is now in her 50s. 
I wonder how she handles being adult because there's no way around it anymore. She goes by the name Brianna Kinsey. She wrote a book called Chloe and you can purchase it on Barnes and Noble's website. I didn't read it, although I must say I'm very curious. And so if I ever get around to reading it, I'll let y'all know about it. She also had a blog she kept, but she hasn't updated it since 2020. There are pictures on it and the woman on the blog in the pictures, it's obviously Brianna. Even though she's in her 50s, she looks just like she does in the pictures that are posted from when she was in her 20s. Now, it looks like she's at least reconciled with one of her sisters because she posted pictures of herself and her sister on a trip, and they looked very happy. So hopefully she's found some peace in her life. Brianna's mother did finally acknowledge Brianna's abuse, but her father never did. He said he wished that people would stop saying horrible things about Treva and Billy Ray. Both her parents have since passed away. But what do y'all think? Was it a big con? Does she believe that she's Brianna Kinsey or someone else? I'd love to hear your opinions. Let me know. I go back and forth all the time. Like I said, I do think that she was suffering from some kind of mental break. I don't know what, but then there were times, like I said, why would she get so mad if someone questioned her? I don't know. I go back and forth. I do think she is someone who suffered a lot and maybe she just wanted to be someone else. Thanks for listening today. Let me know what you think by contacting me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod, or you can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime, or you can send me an email at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a five-star review and tell a friend about the podcast, and I'll see you all next week. Bye.